When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Literature channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my great honor to be in dialogue with Gila Green. She is the author of the novel With a Good Eye, a novel published in Montreal by AOS Publishing 2024. Gila, thank you for your kindness in participating in today's dialogue. Thank you for hosting me, Ari. It's really nice to be here. It's really a pleasure. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult? Sure. I'm from Ottawa originally. Um, and since this is a Canadian podcast, I won't have to explain <laughs> where that is, like I usually do. I lived there um, until I was in my second last year of high school. And then I actually lived in Winnipeg for a year. I graduated from high school in Winnipeg. And uh, and then in my early 20s, a couple of years later, I came to Israel and then there was a lot of back and forth, and eventually I settled in Israel, where I am now. Uh, formative experience. I always was very um, attached to books and school. I really devoured books as a child. It's not a particularly original um, original scenario. I was just one of those kids who was always reading, reading under the table, reading in restaurants. Um, so I think... I've always wanted to work with books and language and expression and communication. What inspired you to write this novel? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So this particular novel, With a Good Eye, I actually have been tried to write it over a number of years. It was one of my most difficult um, novels to write. It was the type of novel where I would write it and then I would, you know, get maybe a third of the way or half of the way and I would send it to some beta readers and... Uh, it never, never, I never got the reaction I wanted. I, I struggled a lot with the characters. I wanted to write this novel because I feel, well, a few reasons. One, both of the parents in the novel suffer from um, mental illness. When I say mental illness, I mean undiagnosed mental illness. These are not people who are, you know, going to therapists and <laughs> getting diagnoses and exploring um, their mental health. They simply have... Uh, mental illnesses they're high functioning meaning they you know they manage they have a roof over their head and they feed themselves but not much else 
And I wanted to portray those type of characters for years, and it was not easy to do. A lot of us have a lot of stereotypes about mental illnesses, right? Like if you, if someone says to you OCD, so automatically you're thinking of that person, you know, washing their hands over and over when it could be that somebody has OCD and they, you know, and that's not what they do. They might do something else completely, but you have to get rid of the stereotypes and that sort of television and movies put in with you. And also the other problem is that people are not their mental illness. They don't equal their mental illness. So you might have, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, but that's not who you are. It's just a part of who you are. So to try to portray a well-rounded character that had other attributes and that, and that was, was very challenging for me. I wanted to write it because I experienced it a lot myself also growing up and in my life in general. And I felt that I rarely saw those characters in novels, even though that's impossible statistically, right? If people with, in my case, this novel is somebody with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, that's the mother. The father has um, post-traumatic stress disorder as, a, as an Israeli war veteran. It's impossible that there aren't millions of people with these and a myriad of other conditions. But I rarely saw them in novels unless the novel was about that and that's not what I wanted I wanted the novel to be about something else in this case uh, my heroine Luna Levy who's trying to just get through life she just wants to you know sort of get to college have a normal life but she has to deal with this very very low functioning family I wanted her to be the center but the people around her have these issues and I really struggled with portraying uh, three-dimensional characters. I would give up, put it aside, write a different book, get in, you know, get into something else, go back to it. It always nagged at me. At one point I just thought I'm just not gonna be able to do, I just can't portray these people on the page. Um, but eventually um, with enough beta readers and um, encouragement, I I feel, I once I sort of felt I cracked it and I finished it actually, you know, in under a year after years of really having a hard time um, getting the right tone. And, and I, I hope I did get the right tone. I'll, I'll have to, uh, the book's only in pre-release. So hopefully I'll, hopefully I succeeded. Can you say a bit more about your writing process? Where and when did you do your best writing? I do my writing right here in my bomb shelter <laughs> where we are right now. Um, I converted into an office, which most people in Israel do. The bomb shelter is either an office or a spare bedroom or a playroom or some kind of extra room. It's obviously very quiet because it has thick walls and a nice thick door. So it's a quiet uh, place to work. I have five kids. Um, they're, my, my youngest is 16 now, but most of my work I wrote when they were far younger. So trying to work, you know, to earn a living and also write and raise um, five kids. At one point I had five kids under the age of nine. You really just write whenever you have time, mostly in the evening, very often nursing a baby or with a small child asleep somewhere in your visual, like periphery somewhere on a couch. That's most, most of the way I've done my writing. Can you explain the image on your book's front cover for us? Yeah. 
I would love to. The image is a khamsa. It's specifically a Jewish khamsa because there are um, Muslim khamsas as well. In Islam, there, um, a khamsa is also a symbol. I think they call it the hand of Fatima, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not an Islam expert, but I'm pretty sure they call that symbol the hand of Fatima. Um, um, so this is a specifically Jewish khamsa. And you, if you notice it on the cover, it's part of a necklace. It's kind of the charm on a necklace. And this, another goal of my novel, aside from my eagerness to try to portray well-rounded um, people with mental illness and how it is for their relatives to cope with that, was to write about a, a Sephardi Jewish family, because that was that's all been a goal in a lot of my writing in general is to expand the canon of Jewish literature to include more um, Sephardi characters, Moroccan characters, Yemenite characters, Israeli characters, basically, you know, non-Ashkenazi characters, because I was obviously a huge reader of Jewish fiction growing up, and I, I felt that the options for Jewish families were very narrow and limited in pretty much almost 100% of any Jewish novel that I read. Um, so I wanted to expand that. Um, so therefore, I wanted to not only have a family with a, a Yemenite background and Moroccan friends, but also their symbols, their foods, their symbols. So rather than have Luna Levy wear a Star of David or a Chai, uh, which are you know great symbols and I, I'm wearing a star of David myself but I, I wanted a fully rounded character from that background and so her friend gives her a hamsa and she wears it can you tell us about the character Flynn can you mm. describe Flynn for us yeah I love those characters uh, writing uh, villains is really really fun <laughs> if you could uh, just uh, you know I guess I guess if you're a cartoonist or something, you can really go all out. You sort of have to stay um, in realism. Uh, Flynn is uh, the villain in the novel. Um, so that was a lot of fun for me. I was really trying to go back in my head to, first of all, 1980 in general, just so different from where we are right now in, in 2023 on the cusp of 2024. Um, that kind of villain who's, like not a you know you have a lot of sort of low life criminal people but they're not particularly successful it doesn't mean they're successful at it right so someone who has kind of semi-success um but again i wanted a three-dimensional um character but someone that you would really hopefully you know cringe when he comes on scene a, like a little over the top. He dresses really flashy, really gangstery, and he speaks that way. But the thing is, he's genuinely dangerous. He's a genuine um, character. He's kind of an amalgamation of some of those type of characters I knew in my childhood. Um, you know, a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, um, genuinely violent, um, with prison um, experience. So that kind of that kind of thing. And I, I mean, I also really enjoy writing those type of characters. How is the Hebrew language presented in the novel? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the Hebrew language is really 
presented in that novel almost like a, I don't want to use the word weapon, but almost like a barrier, a physical barrier between the family because the father um, comes from Israel and Hebrew is his first language. But the only other person in the family who learns that language is his daughter. The mother and his son don't speak Hebrew, don't have any interest in speaking Hebrew, and therefore are blocked from understanding him, you know, literally in some ways when he expresses himself in Hebrew. But also, as we both know, a language is also it's a culture, it's a way of thinking, it's a sense of humor, it's, you know, a language is, I'm also in English as a second or foreign language teacher, as, as it's called today. And it's very important for me to impose on my students that a language is also a culture and a way of thinking. It's not just a literal translation of the language you already know. So it almost puts them in sort of, I don't want to say teams, but it's a barrier between the relationship with the with the father and his wife and his son, and so it's a physical object. It 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 has effects and it 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 represents memory, right? Um, I think it's I think it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, if I'm not mistaken, who said that Jews represent memory. Jews are about remembering and memory. And so by extension, Hebrew would also encompass that idea of memory. And in this case of the novel, you know, the father's memories in Hebrew are negative ones from wars that he's fought and people um, who he's lost. It's a, there's a loss. It's kind of this open well of loss throughout the book. There's a, there's a poem that um, reoccurs throughout the book. I don't know if you remember it. Um, about that her, her that Luna's father used to say to her when she was young when he put her to bed about a little a little boy who goes to kindergarten and the door is locked that's all in Hebrew obviously translated into the book so it's a lot it really it doesn't have a particularly positive rule except the bond between the father and the daughter but other than that it's more a symbol of of loss and remembering can you tell us about the character Stephanie who is Stephanie uh, so Stephanie Baker is another uh, a fun character. She's there to balance things out and kind of really represent a kind of um, Canadian uh, Jewish perspective. She's a she's a fairly typical um, Canadian Jewish girl. She's she's um, has her own personality, right? She's always late. She wants to please her boyfriend, who's Luna's brother, uh, Ronan. She's very rational. She's practical. She can see clearly. She has practical solutions. She's not afraid to speak her mind. Um, she's into fashion. She's into um, beauty. She wants to go to beauty school. Um, she's good with her hands, right? She cooks. She bakes. She does hair. She does makeup. These are all related Um Qualities. Very often the same people who are really good at decorating cakes are really good at doing hair and makeup. And she represents a stability that is not in Luna's life. She comes to the house, she cleans, she cooks, um, she's high-functioning. She, re she represents stability. What, if anything, is distinctly Israeli about this novel? 
Well, the father, as I said, is from Israel and he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder as a veteran of two Israeli wars. And Luna uh, reads about some of his uh, traumatic experiences and letters that he writes to her. That is very, very Israeli and very specific, very specific wars and very specific times and place in 1956 and 1967. Um, so that is very Israeli. The foods, um, there, are, there are a lot of food in the novel. Actually, in my second novel, Passport Control, one of my first reviewers said to me, you have so much food in your novel. Like I just I love reading about all this food and I wasn't even aware of it. And now I realize that food is everywhere. Um, in my writing. So, you know, she, when she misses her father, she notices the slug, which is like a hot, spicy spread in the fridge. That's very Israeli. Um, her and her brother at the end, they do this sort of very well-known dance, the Yemenite step, which is a very, is very Israeli. So there, there are Israeli elements, but I, I think on the whole, it's, it's actually a really Canadian novel. The setting is strongly Canada. Can you tell us about the character Aiden? Who is Aiden? Stephanie and Aiden are sort of foils for each other. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you saw it as a reader, but they both represent stability, normalcy. They're both super high functioning. Aiden is um, Luna Levy's best friend. Aiden Battelle. She plays a, a strong role in the novel. She's the one who gives her the Hamsa necklace. Um, but sort of Stephanie's very Ashkenazi. Aiden is Moroccan, very, very strong on her Moroccan identity, not ashamed of her Moroccan identity. Aiden is much, much wealthier than Stephanie. Aiden is a an athlete, whereas Stephanie in the one sort of athletic scene, she she can all she can do is like run around a a high school track, right? She's not a real athlete like Aiden. They're sort of foils for each other in the end. You know, both of them at some points in the novel will give Luna the sense of feeling betrayed, of loss. She'll kind of lose both of them, have to regain them. Um, so they're kind of two pillars for Luna. There's also a jealousy between them for Luna's attention. There's sort of two sort of fields that that secure Luna. Can you tell us about the setting of this novel? What does your novel reveal about Jewish Canada? What do the contexts of Jewish Ottawa, Jewish Winnipeg, Jewish Toronto, and Jewish Montreal reveal about your work? Well, the most of the setting is Ottawa, as I said, in the very early 80s, if not 1980, then maybe at the most 1981. Like Hope was represented also by the poem that I included in the beginning of the novel by this wonderful poet who I've uh, worked with, Melanie Faith, who very graciously allowed me to use her poem. And the poem, you know, it, it's a lot about a pay phone and the cord of the phone, which very much represented the time period and the, the it was... Um, you know, it has kind of a dark feeling. There's a feeling of suspense and tension, which also is in the novel. So I felt the poem was really perfect. And Mel uh, Melanie was gracious to let me use it. So that was part of the setting. The setting, I think, reveals 
just how small town Ottawa was in those days. You know, as much as people from there often are prideful of the fact that it's the capital, you're always hearing it's the capital, the nation's capital, capital, capital. But underneath that title, which is a legitimate title, it certainly is the capital, and it certainly is a very civil servant um, town. Um, it's a small town, has really a lot of small town um, thinking and mentality. It also very much reveals how close Ottawa is to the French border and French society. There's at least one French character in the novel, um, Gustave. Um, French was very much part of my day-to-day um, growing up in Ottawa, as opposed to people I've met later from Toronto, who really, French was maybe a subject in school, but it wasn't a living, breathing part of their life. Whereas I, I'd heard French all the time. Um, it was normal to hear French. You didn't really blink. French and English were always being intermingled. So I think that it says a lot about what it was like at that time, sort of the restaurants they go to, how they speak, the dialogue, um, the descriptions are very, very um, vivid. So I, I think, I, I hope, that's so far that's the feedback I've gotten. It definitely gives that sense of, of being from that small town um, at that time. Can you tell us about the Battelle family? So we already talked about Aiden, right? Aiden Battelle is the only daughter. Um, her father, Doron, lives with his daughter. The mother's passed away. She lost her mother when she was young. There, He's a jeweler, which again also reflects a lot of Jews in um, Morocco and other Middle Eastern places were silversmiths, goldsmiths. They, they knew a lot about jewelry and the jewelry trade. So he has brought that with him um to Canada and he's a very successful jeweler customized jewelry etc um so he's a you know he's authoritarian he's quite controlling of his daughter he knows that materialism is a big weakness for Aiden as wonderful as she is she's not perfect and she has a big weakness um for materialism and material objects and material lifestyle in general um, she's very proud of her heritage, as I said. Those are the two, that's really the whole family. Doron Vettel had a uh, encounter, a violent negative encounter with Luna's father before the novel begins. In the original version of the novel, there was actually a prologue that showed this encounter, sort of a three-page prologue. And then I was talked out of putting it in and I only hint at it in little places through the novel that at one point Luna's father who went to the Betzalel Academy of Design um, was working for Doron and then he got triggered by something that triggered a bad memory and um, there was a violent encounter between them and so he was fired and um, after that Aiden wasn't allowed to to hang out with Luna anymore. So their relationship became secret. And because they were still in grade school, you know, so they had their secret language and their secret meetups and that continued. Um, it continues right through the novel where Aiden has to hide her relationship with Luna because of, of her father's feelings for Luna's father. Can you comment on the importance of objects in this novel? How do belongings, possessions, and material items reveal aspects of characters' identities and the unfolding plot? 
Sure. Well, the cover, right, is a very important object in the novel. And so Aiden gives this necklace to Luna. It's engraved in the back. It, so it has the symbolism, A, of being a Sephardi Jewish symbol, but it also is a symbol of faith. And even though these um, the Jews in this novel are are quite um, secular, they're still very traditional. And certainly from Aiden's uh perspective she's always talking about you know uh, tapping into higher powers and luck and fortune and so she it very much reflects how she feels about um sort of your ability to control your own destiny right if you're if you're if you're wearing the right amulet and you're you're saying the right words maybe you'll have more control over your destiny it'll bring you luck and it'll more importantly it'll watch over you she recognizes that her friend is involved with in some way dangerous people and and that luna keeps aiden out of this so it's almost like an aiden replacement like if you're not going to let me into all your personal problems and to try to protect you at least let me give you some sort of surrogate like a substitute protection if you're going to hide all the these scary things in your life for me at least you'll have this so it, it actually represents a lot and then at one point luna um loses the necklace um which is very symbolic and significant because it, it happens after she feels she's losing everything and everyone and everything is out of control it's kind of the climax of the novel and then her romantic interest um ian angel finds it for her he goes back to where she lost it and finds it. So that's very significant. Um, this kind of surrogate, you know, friend watching over her through the necklace, losing it, finding it. I would say that's the most significant object in the novel. We already talked about food. Um, so there are a lot of foods. I've actually started even a food um, Instagram and TikTok to try to um, discuss some of the recipes and, um, food in the novel and I mean I've expanded it obviously um other objects besides the necklace and food I don't think there are any other major objects that carry through the whole novel I think those are the big ones can you say a bit more about the aesthetics of food in the novel well I think food is really important you know, we, we eat it every day. We, it's part of our, our, our daily life. And we tend to attach food. Um, you know, we're very sentimental about certain foods and foods and memory and, and that sort of thing. So I sort of use food um, to tap into that trigger of memory, of sentiment, holidays, you know, um, there's Hanukkah, Passover, she goes to the holidays, she doesn't get the holiday foods that she's used to because everything's really fallen apart by that time. It's, it's actually a restaurant. Um, it's first, it's a, a corner store that's supposed to serve, you know, food they would never eat at home. It's they've made a big point in the novel that her mother can't cook, you know, they eat out of, um, boxes or cans in very strong contrast to Aiden's house where everything's homemade with a lot of ingredients and she gets homemade stuff from her grandmother. So I, I use food to contrast people, to contrast lifestyles, to highlight cultures, to make characters feel sentimental. 
are resentful. Um, you can really use food to do pretty much anything you want. There's kind of a pseudo birthday party for um, Luna at one point in the novel, very belated one. They make a big deal about preparing the food. So, you know, it, it's a waste for writers not to manipulate food in their novels to trigger feelings of their of their readers, I think. Who did you write this novel for? Can you describe the ideal reader and the imagined audience? Well, to be honest, my ideal reader in my head was all of those people. And I imagine there must be millions of them who are growing up in households that they can only lie about. They can only lie about these households and what's going on. Um, because so many people have very high functioning, but dysfunctional parents in so many different ways. And certainly in the 80s, that was just not talked about. It was not acceptable. There was no internet. You could go and look it up online or join some Facebook group or whatever social media group. Um, it was so unbelievably isolating. Um, so it was really for all of those people who I imagined also had to um, sort of live double lives, had to present one way in public and had to present anyone who's ever had to live a double life um, was sort of, that's very broad, but that's who I always had in mind kind of to give them this sense that, that there were other people um, like that as well. Um, obviously, I think that Jewish people will read the book on a different level, but it's definitely not a Jewish novel. I don't think the story is a, a Jewish plot in any particular way. So, you know, people who enjoy a an, um, an original coming of age story, who enjoy um, reading about a heroine who overcomes um, all the things that could so easily weigh her down and knock her off her feet. And uh, I, I hope the ending is realistic, but inspiring. It's really for all those people who like to see people who don't, don't appear as though they have a chance um, overcome and succeed. Can you tell us what the character David, David Halevi? Oh, okay. That's a very brief, that's um, a very brief, um, character he's probably only in there for a couple of paragraphs it's really a memory of um, Luna's father um, writes to her about a fellow uh, paratrooper is David Alevi the paratrooper or was David Alevi the one who got shot in the second memory I really just um, tried to make the name as close to Luna's father's name is possible to show how intertwined he was with them. I believe he's the paratrooper um, who someone that Luna's father's never been able to forget because they both jumped out of the airplane at the same time. But in those days, Israel was only um, eight years old. So had very poor, very, very poor equipment. So there was a decent chance that your parachute might just never open. And so his friend's parachutes never opens and he just jumps to his death. Whereas Luna's father survives and he 
has to live with this his whole life. I know he can't explain it. It's obviously, there's no explanation for it. They, you just sort of grab a parachute, right? It's a really game of chance and one opens and one didn't. So it's, it really is just a haunting, like a ghost really for the father. And that, that becomes sort of second generational trauma for, for his children. Can you say more about the Levy family? Can you contextualize the Levy family for us? as it is portrayed and presented in the novel? Well, I've, al I've already said quite a bit. As I say, Luna is has her parents. Her mother is a Canadian stage actress who, for various reasons, um, could not pursue her acting career. But her the flame of, of her dream to become an actress and to be, be, to be famous, to be a celebrity, just absolutely cannot go out it cannot be dampened or watered down and uh, not with time not with age not with anything else so she has a mother who is um completely self-centered very limited in her ability to empathize with anyone um besides herself um but she's she's pretty smart and about certain things anyway. Uh, she's a feminist. She's very, uh, she, she's very feministic um, throughout the novel. I don't know about not post-feminist, like a, a 19, you know, 60s, 70s uh, feminist, not, not what people maybe would think today because we're talking about, a, 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 I guess, a historical novel. That sounds a bit crazy, but I guess in a way it's a historical novel. It's 1980. Um, so she's a very, very talented stage actress and um, she's extremely manipulative and, and she's just not available for her daughter. Simple as that. She just doesn't have um, motherhood to give after, you know, other than birth and a roof over your head, there's really nothing to give. So that's who she is. She married very late in life to this um, war veteran who is a jewelry designer and um, as I say, they don't, neither of them have the same mother tongue. So they're, well, by the time we meet them, they're not even really a married couple. They're kind of not in any legal sense separated, but certainly very physically and emotionally separated. They never know when the other one's going to appear, when they're going to come. They don't inhabit the same residents so you know they don't eat together they don't sleep under the same roof they're they're in a lot of ways separated um and then she has an older brother ronan and ronan has um physically his mother's looks she's very blonde she's very blue-eyed and and luna has inherited her her father's uh darker looks um but the siblings the siblings are very close but um, nonetheless, you know, Ronan has has his interests and his goals. So that's kind of the dynamic there. How does this novel advance our understanding of interpersonal relationships? How is friendship depicted in the novel? Well, I hope the novel is very nuanced. <laughs> I hope I, it's, it's only out in pre-release. So um, very few people, you know, relatively speaking, have actually read the novel. I'm not the type of author. I don't, I can't speak for other authors, but it doesn't work for me to have 
you know, a dozen people read my final drafts and give me feedback. Once I sort of get over, I get into the groove of a novel, I usually don't have more than two, three people tops who give me feedback. And then there's the editor at the at the publishing house. So that was kind of it. Since then, even in pre-release, people can still order it directly from the Montreal publisher. So I've had more feedback since then and some reviews since then. So I hope it's very nuanced. I hope it shows, again, how, first of all, how we don't really know what's going on in other people's lives. We really have no idea what's going on in other people's lives, which sounds maybe even trite. We all sort of know it, but I hope it really portrays it and depicts it. We, people could really be going through absolute um, craziness and people, outside people can have no idea, even their closest uh, friends. I think, I hope it explores friendship. There's there's a romantic aspect to the novel. I mean, um, as I say, between Luna and Ian and, and loyalty, loyalty and friendship and how how complex parent-children relationships are. A really, um, we are just biologically programmed not to want to give up on our parents, sort of no matter what they do, it's very hard for us, which I believe is biologically based, um, to turn our backs on our parents. No matter what they do to us, we just tend to give them, you know, second chances and third and fourth and hundredth chances. It's very, very difficult for us to separate um, no matter how abusive they are or what we have to go through. So I hope, I hope that that's there. Um, the idea of the ending, which I don't want to blow for people is that that sort of nature nurture question, right? Like, do we really ever get out of our original homes that we grew up in do we ever really leave as sophisticated and, and intelligent as we all think we are in 2023 or do we just sort of keep keep a lot of the our initial patterns with us you know forever that was kind of the message of the ending how do parent child relationships appear in this novel so like i said it's really about um this kind of exploration of how much you know, how much can children take? How much will they take from their parents um, before they before they snap? Or will, do, do, do they snap, you know, no matter what? Sort of already gone into that. That's, that's kind of the, the question. The parents are really going to extremes and um, there's still this sense of loyalty. And, and when does loyalty become, you know, toxic, not, not praiseworthy? You know, these are these are there are no one hundred percent answers to these questions. Of course, how is God depicted in the novel? Well, that's a good question because you have different types of faith. You know, in the novel, because as much as even what Luna's father has gone through, he refers to God a lot. Um, God forgot him on on the day of of you know of certain battles in the war. He talks about God forgetting forgetting about him and his. Um, his fellow soldiers. Um, he talks about, um, you know, how Luna doesn't need to wear makeup because God already made her beautiful. He definitely um, expresses a feeling in God, a feeling for God um, that he's obviously conflicted about. Uh, he's very human to him. You know, he can forget about him. He can remember him. He can create his children. He, he can do a lot of things. He's um quite humanized in that way 
and Aiden, it, it talks much more about fortune. Again, coming from a more materialist perspective, a younger perspective, she talks about sort of, you know, God can either give fortune or, or take it away, but you need to always be thinking about it. You know, you need to be thinking about it, focusing on luck. If you want it to come your way, you can't sort of live randomly. You kind of have to to plan God into your day, <laughs> so to speak. Like, so she's got her own expressions. And I think those are the two most uh, spiritual people in the novel. What roles do history and memory play in this novel? So, like I said, um, the whole post-traumatic stress disorder is coming from this war history, this violent history. So it plays a huge role in the novel, although it's not, it's just, it's present, but it's, it's not really discussed. It's kind of like furniture, you know, it's there. It's not up for discussion. Um, besides two short, really short letters, um, the rest is there for the reader to fill in. I tend to write in a way, maybe it's like a greedy way. I, I want the reader to be with me and to fill things in. I'm not big on spelling everything out for the reader at all. Um, and I, so a lot of the roles that things play are between the lines. Um, so there's that history. The mother also has history, the, the acting career that she lost, that she was devastated by um, when her parents died and she couldn't take up um, certain acting opportunities because she had her responsibility. So there's a lot about parents' responsibility to parents' loyalty. Um, so she had her history of being on stage that she was trying to recapture and does indeed attempt to recapture by the end of the, the novel. So people's personal, people's dreams, if you want to put dreams into the category of history, are really um, main drivers in this novel. How does this novel advance our understanding of trauma? Well, I would love for someone to, to, to read it and let me know. Uh, for, for me, as I said in the beginning of the interview, that was the most difficult thing for me, was to try to get across that people can be traumatized, but then that's not that's not their definition now. It's like that old, it's probably an old saying by now, right? Like you have ADD, you aren't ADD, right? When people say I'm ADD, no, <laughs> you're not ADD, you have ADD. Like you have diabetes, you're not diabetes, right? That's that's already hopefully, you know, quite a worn out sentence. I don't know if enough people um, think about that when they think about mental illness, if we could get away from the extreme stereotypes that often you see on television or in books where these people are clearly not, you know, functioning at all. They're either hospitalized, et cetera. I'm not talking about that kind of mental illness. I'm talking about, um, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm talking about mental illness where people do have a roof over their head and food and, and function and, and families. So I hope it advances in the sense that these people are still nuanced. They still have their own personalities. They're not, you know, they're not all the same any more than everyone who, who experiences ADD is the same as everybody else. They're not the same. They come, like you said, it comes with its own memories, its own reasons. 
every war veteran with PTSD is not going to react the same. Um, so I hope that it, it shows how common it is also revealing the time period of the novel, right? Where it just wasn't discussed and there was no information about it at all. You just didn't hear about it. It just wasn't, wasn't out there if it was only an insider kind of topic which made it all pretty impossible for young people to have access to it how have the events on october 7th and since october 7th influenced the ways that you look back on this novel and reflect on this novel can you comment on the significance of this novel in the past couple of months? Um, yes, I can. Actually, it, it's it's really interesting. When the novel, um, you know, was accepted for publication, that was already, you know, a year ago. And so I really wasn't tying it into current events. Um, unfortunately, uh, the issue of PTSD as a war veteran is now um, only going to become a, an increasingly relevant um, issue. Uh, I don't think, I think there are a lot of people who don't realize that because the novel, it does show the effects in some degree, but a very, you know, tunneled, tunneled vision of it because it's really from the perspective of the daughter. So I don't know if people often realize I don't know enough about what's out there, but I certainly, and I'm a massive reader, I read at least uh, a novel a week, if not two, which is even outside of my work as a book editor and writing coach. I'm a really big reader. Um, I've never read a book that, that has much reflection on what it's like for the children of those people. So that is unfortunately um, going to be very, very relevant and increasingly relevant because um, in my ideal world, those children would have certain guidance and a place to go to and, and certain help because it is it is not obvious to a child why a parent might be reacting a certain way um, because of a war they experience is not obvious at all and how to cope with that and how not to internalize that yourself and receive your own uh, secondary trauma so that suddenly is very relevant and as well there's a thread of anti-semitism in the novel it's not a huge huge thread but it's there um sort of behind this criminal element that we discussed with flynn um and again unfortunately um we all are aware that anti-semitism has increased by I don't know, like pick a pick a news channel who's given you a statistic. I don't know. However, wild amount of uh, percentage, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or Canada or, you know, pick a pick a place. So unfortunately, this the, the threat of anti-Semitism and the PTSD um, has made me reflect on the relevance of the novel, which originally when I was writing it, there was so much talk about narcissists, narcissism. Now, unfortunately, the word is thrown around. You know, someone just looks in a mirror th three times and already they're being called a narcissist. You know, it's being confused with vanity and and self-centeredness and, and a lot of other things. I'm talking about really um, 
pathological narcissist, not someone who just likes to look at them, you know, take a lot of selfies. Um, I thought that would be more relevant because it seemed to be everywhere. Um, but as it turns out, it's actually the PTSD and the threat of anti-Semitism that is more relevant right now. Can you tell our listeners where and how they can order your book? When will it be available and what should a listener do if this is appealing to them? Um, I would love to do that. <laughs> sure. So right now, With a Good Eye is only available in pre-order. The official release date is August um, 18th, 2024. Um, but unofficially, it's in pre-order. So if you go to the publisher's site, which um, there's a link on my own website um, of AOS Publishing in Montreal, you can order directly from the publisher and you just have to let him know that you want the novel now and you're not interested in waiting for the actual release date. And thank God, I already know a number of people who've done that and who have received them in the mail from as far as you know the UK, the US. So that does work, um, but you should mention it to him because otherwise I'm sure they would prefer to lessen their workload and just send them out in August. Um, but things like Amazon or Amazon Kindle, you know, that that can't be manipulated. So if you're determined to read um, with a good eye on an Amazon Kindle, you could go to Amazon right now and find it, but you would be pre-ordering it. And Amazon is only going to release it in August. So that's where we're at right now. I think this novel is spectacular. And I can hardly thank you enough for all the silent suffering involved in writing and all the silent suffering involved in pushing it through and making it through the thinking process, the planning process, the writing process, the revising and editing process, and seeing it through to the very end for the blessing and benefit of so many people who you will never meet and may never meet, who will grow immeasurably from your words and your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. That's very, very meaningful um, to hear. I really appreciate that. Thank you. As we end today's interview, I'd like to thank you for paying attention and devoting your time to the New Books in Literature channel on the New Books Network podcast series. Today, I've been in dialogue with the author and novelist Gila Green regarding her newly published work, With a Good Eye, a novel published in Montreal by AOS Publishing 2024.